So friends, every day, do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who deserves not Love someone who does not deserve it. Denounce the government and embrace the flag. Hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Give your approval to all you cannot understand. Praise ignorance. For what man has not encountered, he has not destroyed. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dave. Thanks for joining Bob and I for our podcast, Thriving in Dystopia. And even though we always try and be professionals, sometimes we swear. So just know that going in. With everything's lost, the battle is won. No, that's wrong. With all these friends that I've... Oh, man, I really should have looked up the lyrics to that one. Line. <laughs> Line? Julie? Line? Line? Anybody? Oh, gosh. Um, Hey, we got Danny Danny C back with us. Love to have you here. Um, we have just been having a whole mess of audio issues, but we're I think we're all here and we're all ready to talk. And I am so curious. We, me and Bob, while we were waiting for Dan to get his mic check, checkity check, we were talking about bands, top five favorite bands. Dan, I am so curious. Is Fish, Radiohead, or Rage Against the Machine in your top five? Uh, yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> oh, is that, <laughs> is, that your, is that your top three? Well, now let's, let's backtrack a bit. The, the, way you, the way you phrased the question. Yeah. <laughs> I, I understood right. it as, is, are one of those bands in my top five? It's got to be. <laughs> it's got to be. Yeah, it's gotta be. <laughs> Dan, can you rephrase the question? All right, Dan, how many times have you seen fish on New Year's? On New Year's? Uh, <laughs> my aunt's not a friend for that one. Probably <laughs> three or four times, five times. Oh my gosh. You're a fish head, aren't you? Dave, I'm definitely yeah. a fish head. <laughs> oh, yes. All right. All right. I'm not a James head. I'm a fish head. <laughs> Dave, could you please rephrase the question as you rephrase, you phrased it before? Oh, well, someone, someone take over. Bob, what was the question? Okay. 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 It's, it's a simple question, actually. It's Dan, could you give us your top three bands of all time? Oh, geez. <laughs> That's not a simple question, Bob, but I'll, I'll yeah. give it a go. I'll give it what's coming to me right now. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's going to be Led Zeppelin's going to be in there. Oh, cashmere, yeah. huh? Cashmere. <laughs> As if you could reduce them all to that song. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's, that's the one that gets you going, though, isn't it, Dan? <laughs> that's the one. Da da da. Da da da. Da da da. da. <laughs> Oh, I'm glad we got the condenser mic plugged in for that. <laughs> um, okay, and what else? Uh, what other three? Gosh, oof, oof. Um, I think Radiohead might be in there. I mean, oh, they've got a lot of wow. a lot of good albums. Um, I mean, okay, that was my class. Like, if if you asked me that question, whatever, tw- twelve years ago, the, yeah, Fish, Radiohead. Uh, Led Zeppelin, uh, who else? Hendrix, I don't know. Rage Against the Machine. But, 
but you know who I've been listening to a lot lately? Oh, that, yeah. Uh, bon Iver, definitely. Oh. Mm. My my guy, Justin Vernon, that's way up there. That's it. If that's that's my go-to right now, if, if they could say, so you can listen to one more album before you die, I would, th- I'd play Bon Iver. Which one? Self-titled. Yeah. It's the second, second album. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Not for Emma, huh? <laughs> no. No, the second one is better. Absolutely. I kind of like his third one, though, with all the weirdness. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a great one, too. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I like that. Oh, so man. he's, you know, that you know what he's been up to lately during quarantine, right? Um, is he back in the woods in upper Wisconsin? I, yes, he's in, I think so. And he's been uh, partnering with T Swift. <laughs> oh, my. Wow. Yep. Titans of SWAT right there, huh? But wait, wait, wait. This is perfect for you, too, because it's not just. Justin Vernon and T Swift. There's another guy involved in the project. What's his name? Aaron Dresner Dresnan from the National. Little band oh, called the National. The baritone. Oh, the bar- The the voice. No, the brother of the voice. I think. I think he's the brother of the voice. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Yeah. Oh my god. That's pretty good. Wait, where where are they where are they all hold up? That's what I want to know. Upstate New York. Well, okay, so uh, Vernon stayed at home because of the pandemic, yeah. didn't travel. But then you got T Swift up in a, a cabin in upstate New York with uh, this guy Aaron. I don't know why I'm blanking on his last name. Aaron De- Desner I'll, Dresner. I'll, I'll get it for you. Yeah, go grab it. And then. Um, this guy from us uh, is great. A lot of connections here. Uh, the guy from he, he's in a band called the bleachers. Now he, I think he's like a producer works with a lot of people and he uh, was also the guitar player for the band fun. His name. What is his name? <laughs> <laughs> you know oh my. Yeah, I know. Well, I know fun. Yeah. I, Jack. I remember fun. Jack. It Jack is Eric Antonoff. Okay. Oh, Sorry, it is Eric Dresner. No, it is Aaron Dresner. Is he married to T Swizzle? No. No. Okay. No, 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 no. She's dating this actor. I forget his name, but here's the other man. I'm going deep here. So he, <laughs> he he's an actor, but a, yeah. secretly a musician, and he wrote a song or two that's on the album. And under a pen name, uh, called like William Bowery or something. Uh, I'm mis- just messing this up for all the T Swift fans. I'm going to get destroyed. <laughs> Don't worry, we have very <laughs> few of those on our audience base. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wait, Dan, did you listen to the band Local Natives? Oh yeah. Did you know that Aaron Dresner produced all their albums? Really? Yeah, he produced, and he produced a lot of Taylor Swift's al- albums as well as Frightened Rabbit. Frightened Rabbit. Wow, that's one I haven't heard in a long time. Yeah, I'm not even sure I know them. Um, I think uh, Albert listened to them. Frightened Rabbit, Scottish indie rock band from Skelkirk. Um, Okay, let's go way back. So we got... here's, Here's my next question. 
are the red hot chili peppers in your top 10, Dan? <laughs> wow. <laughs> the chili peppers in my top 10, I, I don't think I can say no, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry. Out on a ledge there. Is there any other top 10 bands that you'd like to be once and for all? Finally, just say it right now on yeah, the narrow cast that they're known. Yeah. That are, that are known. I mean, known to be on Dan Cantrick's top 10, you know, cause that means something. It does. Okay. Well, yes, there definitely are some, let me think about this. Well, if, I, if, if you have to, okay, here's the question. If, if you really have to think about it, you know, is that really a thing? Maybe, wow, maybe those yeah. bands, bands I named are the bands. Maybe that's it for me. Maybe I stopped just, listening to music like 12 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> you just started listening to gypsy jazz, right? Yeah. A lot of John Jorgensen, a lot of, um, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of that great underground stuff. Oh, I, I hear here's a, here's a band that would definitely crack my top 10. Yeah. The Dawes. Yeah. You know, I was thinking that. Of course. When you were going on that six degrees a second ago, I was waiting for Taylor Goldsmith to get on that list somehow. (laughs) On that project. (laughs) Yep. Somehow get Taylor Swift up to Utica. Yes. Utica. (laughs) (laughs) Or somewhere upstate, you know? Yes. Um, oh, who else, you know, uh, disclosure Lumineers. Those are two more modern bands that I don't know if they crack my top 10 tame and Paula, but they, in the last 10 years, <laughs> oh, they yeah. might be in my nice. top 10. Yeah. yeah. Top 10 of the last Paula would have been like the most recent to crack my top 25, but not my top 10. Top wow. 25. Wow. I will say that. Julie Julie Peachtree just turned off the podcast after hearing both of you declare that Tame and Paula cracked cracked the list. <laughs> wow! <laughs> yeah, future Julie Peachtree is going to be pissed off oh, that Tame and Paula is even being on this discussion. Well, future yeah. Helen Maisler turned this off six minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, she's like, "Where's the content? Where's the poetry? Where's the content?" <laughs> yeah, well, okay, oh. let me. Can I, before we change subjects, can I just rattle off a bunch of bands that I'm listening to that I like that oh, I just want to get the interest? I okay. mean, that'll get Nick Lane right back on this thing. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. So Nick Lane just turned it way up. That's who I'm doing. That's who we're potting for. Okay. This is who. Okay. Ready? James Blake, Frank Ocean, Wolfpack, Oregon, Breakestra, Daft Punk, Sylvan Esso, Childish Gambino. <sighs> Lucius, Santa Gold, the Tune Yards. Oh gosh, so live! Um, So live. Oh yeah, here's a cup. I don't know. I'm not going to say those because I only listen to like three of their songs. Um, yeah, let's leave it at that. That's just a quick rattle. (laughs) That's a good rattle. (laughs) Yeah, it it was getting me going. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm going to I'm going to go back and re-listen to this and start a playlist. And um actually probably Bob you'll start a playlist and share the Spotify. Yeah. I'll I'll get yeah. this on the show notes for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I like to hear. 
Nice. You use Spotify? Is that your... Well, Google Play just closed down. Did you know that? No. It got, it got like bought out by Amazon. Is that right, Bob? No. Uh, it's on... Like, they moved it to YouTube. So... No. Something... Maybe... I think Google owns YouTube, and they just, like, moved it onto YouTube. Wow. Google owns YouTube. Jeez. <laughs> what? I, yeah. That, I think that's true. But- here's here's another question all right why is it that we can't name the head guy of google (laughs) yeah it's like it's like three guys it's two guys and then this like shark guy like this business guy that's that's the head of google these three dudes wow so i did hear I did hear that French guy come up this week, Dan, that you talked about last week. Do you remember his name? Was that on the was that on the narrow cast that that guy came up? The like um hun- hundred centibillionaires, is that what you called them? Wait. Uh, we- no, is this uh, I'm not it's not ringing a bell. This was on the narrow no. cast? It, I don't think it made the narrow cast. <laughs> okay. Well, weren't we trying to name the top five richest people in the world? Was that, or maybe that was just a phone call we had, Dan? Yeah, that must have been. No, that wasn't me. That was not me. (laughs) Oh, no. Also wasn't me. Well, I've literally talked to no one else. Okay. (laughs) Huh. Someone was telling me about the five richest people on the planet. And the Google guy was not on there. Really? Yeah. Yeah, see, I don't even know who they are. I could name Bezos and what, Bill Gates and uh, Tesla. Oh, Tesla. Yeah, Elon Elon Musk. Yeah. Um, There's some French guy that someone was telling me about. I thought it was you. So, whoever that was, sorry. Not me. Maybe it'll come to you by the end of the cast. Yeah, who, who I was having this conversation with. Gosh, who knows? It doesn't really matter. Anyways, um, this is all going to get cut. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, I think it stayed. (laughs) Oh, beautiful. Well, that, that was exciting. I'm pumped to hear about all the music and, um, I think unfortunately we gotta, we gotta get rolling on the real stuff. Don't you guys think? Yeah. I mean, it's some good real stuff. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah, this is good real stuff. I mean, it would have been better if we had said Vampire Weekend, but it's all right. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Can I just throw in my morning jacket? Just, I just yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. A little Yim Yames. Wow. Yim Yames. Wow. I don't know if I'm going to be able to reel you guys in, am I? <laughs> uh, okay. Well, okay. here's the plan. Here's the plan for today. We got some good poetry. Um, we got some, we don't have any bumper stickers this week, unfortunately, but that's all right. Uh, we got, we're going to try and hit, hit, get right back on that discussion of where we left off last week with activism and poetry and putting them together. And I am super curious to go down the path a little bit of some of the anarchists from Germany and we have some some nice activism poetry in the sense of like mm, what did you call it, Dan? Ecopoetics. Ecopoetics, yeah. I'm I'm curious okay. if we can talk about that. What that means? What it, what it, 
What is eco poetics? Yeah, maybe we should just start off there. Does that feel all right to you, to y'all? Yeah, as long as we we get to the the Germans later on. Okay. Yes. Right. Yeah. And is there any other thing that I'm missing that we want to hit on this week? I thought there was a third third little po- poetics that we were going to hit this week. I, I, we, we did. We chatted a little bit about Claudia Rankin last time, but I, if there's time, love to hear more of Dan's musings on her. Yeah. Perfect. And uh, then for maybe a tag at the very end, I'd love to get like 16 through 23 on Bob's top 25. Artist of all time. <laughs> I've got a catalog. <laughs> if we don't get to that, it'll make the show notes. Great. Good. Good. Love that. Um, all right, Dan, why don't you get us fired up with some eco poetics and yeah, start, start modern, go backwards, you know? Well, I, okay. So I was, <laughs> I think, okay. So I was, I was thinking about this this morning. Uh, like what, what is what is eco poetics? You think of poetry. Um, I mean, nature shows up in poetry everywhere, right? In these mm-hmm. love poems, um, you know, comparing a kiss to a rose. Maybe that's a seal <laughs> reference. Um, Ooh, I love it. <laughs> oh, but God. but you know, so I was like, and then I also think of eco. I was thinking, so I also looked up eco. In the etymology of eco and where it comes from. And uh, one of the things that I saw is that eco basically means it comes from a, a Greek word for house um, or ho- household. Um, and so there's this thought of like ecology is the study of the house. You think of the earth, you think of it as, our, as, as a house, as a place where we live, uh, you know, the earth, something that we're on. And, um, I got thinking about, you know, all kinds of different views and definitions of eco, of ecology, of, you know, often people talk about the, the ecology of their, uh, direct community. And you're not necessarily talking about, uh, plants and, um, animals and, you know, fungi. You're talking about, uh, Bob and Dave and the dynamics they have you know, to make up the ecology of our friend group. And so it's so broad. It's so, um, you know, you could talk about eco poetic. I feel like you could really talk about eco poetics in all different ways. So I was was like, well, what, how, what separates it? Um, Like, because when you hear a poem, what makes it um, an eco poetics poem? I was just trying to think of some stuff and something that was coming to my mind is that it's, like I think of, I guess when I'm talking about a practice of poetics, I'm talking about something that's active and it's, um, it's interrogating, it's looking into, it's, it's exploring. It's not just, um, I mean, I think, I think mostly poetry is always doing that. Um, but what I think of like an eco poetics poem to maybe separate it from like a classic, uh, uh, you know, Chaucer love poem that references um, nature a lot is that the eco poetics is thinking about um, language in a way that is that's like uh, uh, critiquing our surroundings. You're thinking about our house, our household, 
whatever that means to you, and you're trying to um, use language as a way to investigate it further. And I, I found this. Um, I, I found some stuff that. Uh, are you all familiar with Gary Snyder? Yeah, uh, and uh, actually, he's a wobbly. So that harkens oh. back to last week. Oh, great! Interesting. Yeah, never he's heard a, of him. Yeah, well, he's he's a uh, you know a very well known kind of like nomadic poet that was really a real like really known like nature poet and would write about the natural wor- world a lot. I think he definitely had ties to San Francisco at one point. I think of him as like a West Coast or a left coast type of, uh, writer. Um, and fringely and definitely like tied in with the beats and a Zen poet. I know he had a strong Zen practice. Um, and he was talking, I I was reading something about him and he was talking about how, uh, you know, science, while science of course is, uh, very crucial to our understanding of the world and very important. Um, what can happen is we can start to, we start to like intellectualize the natural world around us and we try to place meaning on everything. Um, and we try to do so from a scientific lens because science says X, Y, and Z. So this has to be that. Um, and Snyder's, I think what Snyder was talking about is that by coming in with those types of constraints, on the world around us, you miss out on all these other possibilities of how the natural world world can show up and be defined. And it's actually bigger. The natural world, like being like Earth and nature and everything, is bigger than anything that the human brain can wrap its head around. Is what he was trying to say. And so, eco poetics tries to dismantle that um, that process where you try to categorize and compartmentalize nature through a classic understanding of what nature is. Um, He tried to approach it from a place that would completely disrupt that and be open to any possibility of what the the world can teach you. And specifically, uh, one thing he mentioned that I thought was great is like, as humans, we are a species, right? That have senses. So we have taste, smell, touch, all these things. Um, but they have their limitations. There's very limited and there's things in nature. I mean, let's take a dog, for instance, their sense of smell could blow human sense of smell away. And so they're the, like, if, if they could talk, if they could define this stuff, like the way they experience nature is completely different from us. And we have to be open to the possibility of what our limitations are. And that's what he would try to explore in his eco poetics practice. Damn. That is fiery. I love where you just got off, Dan. That theory is blowing my mind a little bit. I don't know if I can quite wrap my head around it quite yet, but I, even just the word poetics, the idea of like, as you put it a little bit more like the action, it's a little more active than poetry, right? Yeah. It's a little more like philosophical than, and like more analytical, which I feel like feels right up right up my alley and kind of like looking at the world from that theoretical action perspective feels interesting to me. And I'm, but I'm also curious, do you have examples? Do you have 
writings, any eco-poetics that you want to share with us? Because I feel like sometimes to grasp grasp it a little bit more, we need that raw example. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I do know what you mean. Um, yeah, let me see. I can pull up a um, let me pull up a Gary Snyder poem. He has um, a collection of poems called uh, "Rip Rap and Cold Mountain Poems." Uh, that I'm familiar with. Uh, so I'm going to see if I can find a selection from that. Okay, so let's see. Let's see. And, you know, what I appreciate about uh, things I've read from Gary Snyder, too, is that it's very much, this is somebody that is very concerned with uh, language and all the inner workings of language and how it can shape our world and our view. Um, okay. This, this is okay. And, and remember he has a Zen practice, right? So he's coming from that, that type of lens. I'm going to, I found this like short one that I think kind of fits the category of what I'm talking about. Whereas like, uh, just cause a poem mentions nature, is it eco-poetics? Uh, let's see here. Okay. How about this one? Here, I, okay, I found one. Okay, so this is Gary Snyder uh, from Rip Rap, Cold Mountain Poems. The, this poem is called Thin Ice. Walking in February, a warm day after a long freeze, on an old logging road below Sumas Mountain, cut a walking stick of alder, look down through clouds on wet fields of the nooksack and stepped on the ice of a frozen pool across the road. It creaked, the white air undersprang away, long cracks shout out in the black. My cleated mountain boots slipped on the hard slick, like thin ice, the sudden feel of an old phrase made real. Instant of frozen leaf, ice water, and staff in hand. Like walking on thin ice. I yelled back to a friend. It broke and I dropped eight inches in. So, I, you know, that's like a lot different than an uh, activist poem that we read about the Spanish Civil War. And I'm trying to read that and think there's a lot of images that come to mind. But I'm like, I'm questioning, like, what what is he saying by these images? What does it mean? You know, he references the Sumas Mountains. Where are those? Um, he he fell into this. I like, I have the whole image and picture of it. But like, what is what else is trying to be said there? That's what I'm thinking about, and maybe nothing. Hmm. Yeah. Like what? It's also interesting. Like sometimes with art and with poetry, you need the context a little bit more. And I feel like knowing that Snyder is this like environmental activist and that he is um, like a Buddhist. And like, I think having that in mind gives a different context to the poem you hear, you know, and it, it sort of is bringing, and what you said about, you know, eco poetics and how they are trying to turn like the idea of what, what we sense as the environment on its head a little bit is kind of interesting to me. And I feel like, you know, how many senses did he evoke in that poem, you know? Right. Totally. Yeah. 
and you know, there's like what we talked about, you know, Claudia Rankine wrote this, you know, um, amazing book of poetry, prose, kind of a hybrid. Uh, I think that it's sometimes described as a, as an American lyric, um, you know, about, um, experiencing, um, the world as a person of color and, you know, interrogating whiteness and the impacts that it has on, on the world and how a, you know, a black woman living in America, all the different things they experience. And to me, that could be, uh, labeled as an eco poetics, um, poem you're, she's describing in, in a lot of the work, you get a very clear visual of, of the city of these neighborhoods that she's, uh, walking us through and visualizing. Um, that to me is a, in, uh, ecosystem that she has set up and then she's critically examining it. Hmm. Love it. Nice. Yeah. Well, I was also hoping to share a little bit of this poem that um, definitely harkens similar ideas. Uh, it is a poem that has always kind of touched me. Is that all right? And we can just sort of take an e- eco-poetics lens to it. I don't know if it necessarily is, but it feels that way to me. This is called... Uh, It's a manifesto, and it's the Mad Farmer Liberation Front by Wendell Berry. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll just read until uh, it feels right. Love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay. Want more of everything ready-made. Be afraid to know your neighbors and to die, and you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. So friends, every day, do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who deserves not. Love someone who does not deserve it. Denounce the government and embrace the flag. Hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Give your approval to all you cannot understand. Praise ignorance. For what man has not encountered, he has not destroyed. Ask the question that, ha- that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into mold. Call that profit. I'll just leave it there. But I really love that poem a lot. Yeah, it's um, I don't, yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. Like hearing it, I'm like grappling with these ideas for the first time. And for me, this eco poetics is about like um a certain like relationship within the poetry of like the the poet to the whatever the environment is, and um sort of showing the showing the relationship and I think that's why Claudia Rankin's work might be eco poetics. And so it's kind of like eco poetics is maybe both a technique and a and a like a overall stance or like way of being in the world and writing about the world. Um, I, for me, the Wendell Berry, like 
brought some of that in towards the end of that poem. Um, whereas the Schneider was like kind of in that the whole time. And for me, this isn't like a, a marker of quality, or, but more just like an observation. But uh, maybe that gives some fodder for Dan to speak to. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I, I definitely like understand where you're coming from about the, I mean, the, these two poems are, you know, that we just heard are, are starkly different to me. And one is like this, I mean, it's called a, a manifesto, right? So it's a call to action. It's like this, um, you know, all the different things manifesto evokes uprising change, um, action and get to work. And there's a piece of that that is very, um, uh, to me feels, uh, feels activated. Like that's what we were talking about in, as like a poetics versus, um, a, a poem or poetry. And it isn't, it didn't, when you hear that, when you hear the Wendell Berry poem, it's not, it doesn't necessarily set up a, um, a scene of, like I, I, it's it's not it's not meant to like set set a scene that you're inside of. Be it a a city where you're walking down alleys and there's um, you know vines growing out of a brick wall versus walking on ice and falling into ice and all that. It doesn't it doesn't set things up that way, but it does achieve this uh, piece that Snyder was talking about um, in the when he's when Snyder's just musing on language and poetry um which has to do what was the line wendell berry said it was something like uh do something i I, you're gonna have to tell me it was basically like break the rules today or do something unexpected or something like that that he said um and that to me is a um that that was like that was the line that stood out and clicked with this conversation we're having because to me that's a uh that that's kind of what Gary Snyder was getting at when he was talking about his practice with language and writing and how he's trying to do something that is um, outside of the constraint, outside of how we typically view uh, the natural world or view language or something, do something unexpected, do something different. Um, That's something that won't compute. That won't compute. That's what I, yeah, I really like that. I really like that line. Do something that won't compute. Like that's a, I mean, that's a challenge for me um, to step outside of that and do something that won't, yeah, compute. It's such a, uh, that like I'm having a feeling that like right now, like that's a risk that what, what does that even mean? Everything. how, How do you even do something that won't, compute how do you get to that space i'm like always weighing out the the risks and rewards and thinking about the actions and outcomes like but if it's not even going to commute like does that go beyond that and um is that even something i can is that saying to do something that i can't you know fully understand or wrap my head around take a chance it's interesting yeah i love where we're headed and how our <clears throat> how we're not it's nice to take these two poems and put them side by side because we there's a lot of love in both of them and they're accomplishing similar goals but in very different ways and i think we should move on and talk a little bit about um Bada meinhof and 
maybe Bob could set the scene a little bit with that. Do you mind doing that for us, Bobo? Be happy to. Yeah. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, Dan told us that he has, I think, a poem by Ulrika Meinhof and Bada Meinhof, um, their group that formed in the 70s in Germany, like an underground um, group of, um, yeah, I don't know, whatever perspective you have, you call them something different, but they were basically revolutionaries and they formed out of the Germans student movement of the sixties that was, um, pushing for more progressive and youth oriented and like more anti-war perspectives out of the German government. And like, um, yeah, the, the government targeted the student movement and killed killed some of the protesters and that radicalized or or made some of the groups more uh thinking about more militant tactics and so the bottom meinhof group were orchestrating bombings and um kidnappings of like prominent people with power in germany and there's a movie about them the bottom meinhof complex that i definitely recommend and so um, you know, I think they were in network with other radicals across the world, um, perhaps the Black Panthers and others. I'm not totally sure about that. But um, so, yeah, I'm very curious to hear what kind of poetry came out of that group. Well, I OK, so I actually don't I don't have any poetry from that group, but you're you are exactly right. I did when I was doing some research on them, I did see that the the Black Panthers are um, were like a one of their top inspiration as far as um their aesthetic and they they um like there's some there's like some things you can find of the black panthers that are very like diy um zine type works um the artwork uh you know i'm thinking of like a a hand-drawn fist in the air or something like that they very much um liked that and put that took that aesthetic and used it in some of their work. Um, I do know that. And I think what she, um, Meinhof, um, like what I, what I read as far as her coming onto the scene, she was writing for, um, the leftist magazine, um, concrete. Do you know that one, Bob? I don't. Um, and she was writing about this, um, this like uh, you know, a, a violent situation between police and student protesters, um, where the police um, went overboard. They this is this is another funny thing. They they invoked a crowd control technique called the liver sausage method. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I have like a quick. I don't even know if I have a quick description of it. So it's named for its resemblance to a stuffed liver sausage. Law enforcement pushed demonstrators onto a long, tight sidewalk between barricades and buildings. They then formed a wedge and rushed the middle of the sausage, causing the demonstrators to push sideways out of the ends of the sausage. Um, Classic German. Classic German, exactly. Right. Um, so 
she okay so she so she wrote a response to it and she started to um outline all these different points of what she sees as um not only calling out the police but drawing the connection of the coverage and how the media is covering um the protests which is so you know uh perfectly current to today and how we often see news of uh you know it's like antifa versus the proud boys um and what it means to show video of people destroying property um as a form of protest um rioting and looting like all these words that get evoked by the media um so she she was really critical of that and um i think i mentioned this last last week but she uh she quoted this as the paradigms of veiling um and a way for the media to um confuse um uh you know viewers it wasn't about reporting um necessarily the the facts as she saw it but she believed that the media operated in the sphere of the performative um which became really interesting because then she took that and subverted it in a lot of their their work they took on the performativeness of um let's say the black panther party where they're taking some of their artwork and they started to really feel like they needed to make um you know have public uh public demonstrations um you mentioned the bombings i mean I, that's pretty nothing is is it doesn't get much more uh that i i don't know i'm just thinking about this now but like how that is a performative act um and you know down to arson to uh performative poetry um all kinds of stuff right and so i really like I really like that. Like she identified this technique that the media was using and then she flipped it on its head for her faction um, as a way to critique that and get and have people see it in a different way that they might realize what's happening. Um, Of course you, the three of us have had these conversations many times about the media um, in this way, but um, yeah, that's what I had, what I was thinking about with Meinhof. Damn, that's that's really powerful. I mean, that like prefigures a lot of like work in the humanities, um, you know, in like media studies and communication studies um, around like how power maintains itself. And and then, yeah, like you're also saying like how this is very much the case in the media. Um, I brought onto this show a few months ago, the New York Times basically talking about um anarchists in these these same terms and creating these rhetorical structures in their pieces that set up anarchists as um like very much wanting to cause property damage in Black Lives Matter protests and taking over and uh, casting anarchists against like the black community in these ways that they, the way they write these articles, it makes it sounds like there couldn't be a black anarchist. Um, There's white anarchists and then there's the black community. So yeah, even, you know, the New York times who, I mean, I read the New York times. I, I bet 
a lot of our viewers do are doing these same things. And, and these are things that are really, they hurt the, the like uh, far left movements. Um, it, they like create these conditions for the far left that uh, allowed president 45 to say that, you know, Antifa is equivalent to the proud boys um, that. I mean, that should be just farcical, but it exists, you know? Gosh, totally. Totally. I mean, it's so, um, and what's, what I think about a lot too is, um, you know, who, how, how is it being consumed then? Because there are these, clearly there are tactics and there's, um, you know, from the reporting side of things to have, um, like you said, the New York times, a, um, news source that a lot of, a lot of people in my, um, circle and community definitely engage with at times, you know, through interactions I've had with people. And then to think about this like fracturing of, right. There's like, there's the people on the left that, um, read the New York. Okay. So there's a bunch of people on the left that read the New York times. And then there's some that are reading that through a lens of what you just described and thinking about it critically of what it's doing to maybe fracture, fracture the movement in some way or misrepresent um, so as to um, cause harm. And then you have this, this uh, discussion that might happen where you have um, somebody uh, villainizing uh, anarchist when you're like, wait, wait a second. I thought we were, you know, I thought, I thought, we were in this in this together, and we all we thought we were we thought that anarchist was this um, thing that was pushing the movement forward and doing a great job. But I go to this news source that I think that I quote unquote say is trusted, and um, they portray a certain image, and it just goes to the point of like you have to. It, it, it's really it's really a matter of thinking through every news source you read critically varying where you get your news um, and not getting stuck in that echo chamber or that, that um, you know, bubble where you you're just getting one type of news, but it's hard when the type of news, when you can't access certain news, I think that's just something I'm thinking about access to um, access to these to these, these stories or these stories that are critical of these mainstream stories um, and telling other stories. I love it. Yeah, I totally agree, Dan. Dave, looking at time, you have uh, the last word on, on this. Well, I'm going to leave you with a little nugget of the future. My brain sort of started wandering to where is the poetry right now with active movements in the world and I started thinking about the Zapatista movement and the Black Lives Matter movement. And one nugget that I came across was a woman named Lorna D. Cervantes, who kind of ties it all together in a lot of ways. She is, um, uh, she's worked at the University of Santa Cruz. She's worked at the University of Colorado Boulder. And she has written poems with the Zapatista movement in mind. And yeah, I'm sort of thinking about what that poetry might look like and what does what is the future of this poetry and the the poetry of activism go towards. And I'm I think that there's always gonna be 
these movements are ripe for beautiful poet poetics and that's yeah just want to leave that nugget with you guys and sort of move towards the end of the show and sounds good to me perfect so i have a quick quick quest for dan dan i'm going to give you three things and you have to tell me which one of these three things is a lie this is the did you know for the week if that if that plays you all right danny boy uh, yeah, it's great. It's like a quiz of what we were just discussing. <laughs> yep. Hey, hey, did you know? 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 So here are your three things. The first one is the average cloud weighs 1.1 million pounds. Whoa. Number two is the largest manufacturer of tires in the world is Legos. What? And number three, Bob, do you remember number three? Yeah, it was about the chicken. Oh, there's a chicken, and his name is Miracle Mike the Chicken. He once lived for 18 months after his head was chopped off, and he traveled the world and had a great time. (laughs) Wow. Wait, but I, I feel like that could be too that that last one feels a little little bit of a trick question when you kind of ad libbed the end there, but that's all right. <laughs> um all right. Come on come on <laughs> him having a great time, okay? I know you, Dave. I know you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm saying what is what is the what is false, what is not true of those yeah. three statements? Two truths and a lie for your did you know this week. Okay. I I oh gosh, that's tricky. I think I think the chicken is is true. I think that happened. Um, I think I don't know why. Le- I've never heard of Legos as making tires, but it wouldn't surprise me if that's something like they're all tied up in one big corporate entity that like Firestone and Lego is all the same thing. Ah, uh-huh. um, and I don't know anything. I know nothing about the weight of clouds and, and really just how they work. I don't know. I just look up at them and I am fascinated. Sometimes spoken like a true poet. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, so I'm going to, I'm going to go that I'm going to say that a cloud doesn't weigh that. That's not, that's not the real weight of a cloud. Well, Dan, that's a good guess, but I set you up to fail. All these things are true. And I was just taken aback. Oh! Oh! <laughs> I know, it's unfair. Uh, oh, Davey. Davey that's, a good, that's a good lesson for me, Dave. Yeah. You, I mean, you spotted that I was setting you up for a trap somewhere, Dan, but you didn't <laughs> quite see the trap. It was laid out for you. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, beautiful. Well, I think, Bob, you promised us a few of your uh, 12 through 25. So I think you're, we're going to skip uh, the social coordinates on how to get in touch with us and just give us, give the listeners and Danny some of your, the last of your list. Okay. I mean, it's a, it's a like interesting portion of my list. Um, <laughs> so I'll give you like three, three bands that I think would be on there. 
Um, and they are the first one is the band The Clash, uh, a great 80s band, uh-huh. um, yeah. punk band from the 80s. Um, another group that I would put on there would be, um, I'm going to say The Strokes. Oh. They also be in that area. Yes. And my last one is, let's go with The Roots. Ooh. The Roots, The Clash, and The Strokes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, I can see that bump. Yeah, totally, right? Like I know I know Bob likes all those bands, but I'm not gonna say they're in his top five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These are not bands that you like really associate with me. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> well, I think on that note we better leave you leave you all go. Thanks for the weeks, Danny. I appreciate all the uh, yeah, Dan. You blew our minds. Yeah. It was great to have you on the show and it really was. Appreciate connecting with you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you both. It was great talking with you and connecting. I um, love this format and I love what you all are doing with it. Well, we'll see you on the episode 83 for the TLC. And um, this might be the last episode of 2020 that gets published. So, wow. That's pretty cool, too. Yeah. Wow. 2021. (laughs) All right, guys. Love you. Love you all. Take care. What's up, Driving Crew? Bob and Dave want to take a second to thank you for lending them your ears. They also want to thank the artists for making everything a little more beautiful. The intro song is In Heaven by Drake Stafford. Our audio is edited by the consummate and dexterous Nadir Chayetch. Web design by Chris the Mixer Sawyer. And of course, visual art is by the prolific and enigmatic Joe Shine. And finally, our new outro song is a cover of Can't Help Falling in Love by our editor, Nadir. See you next week.